HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is so mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cook guests. And my guest today is David Yoshimura, who is the chef owner of Nisei in San Francisco, California. Nisei means the first generation, a son or daughter of Japanese immigrants who were born in the United States. Nisei is inevitably living dual cultures, and many of them choose to celebrate Japanese culture in different ways. And David is one of them. After working at the top restaurants in the world, he opened his own place named Nisei in 2022 and earned a Michelin star within six months after the opening. So today we'll discuss what it is like to be Nisei in America, how David expresses the Japanese tradition through his unique identity, how David explores possibilities of Japanese food in the global context by working with culturally diverse top chefs in the world, and much, much more. But before we start, Japanese is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on the iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japanese. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with David Toyashima. Hello, David. Welcome to the show. Hello, Kiko. Thank you for having me. So, uh, yeah, this is exciting. I have a lot of many questions. So to get to know you first... Where are you from, and what did you eat when you grew up? Uh, so originally, I'm from Houston, Texas. I was uh, born in America, and um, my father is uh, from Japan. So my mother is American. So we kind of grew up eating a mixture of both American and uh, Japanese food. Um, so most of the time, there was like a pot of rice 
<laughs> always on the counter. So it was a lot of rice growing up and usually like uh, eggs or something to go with it. Um, so, yeah. Mm, sounds traditional <laughs> in, Texas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in Texas. So interesting. And um, so how did you get into cooking? Uh, well, I was, I'm, I'm an only child and uh, I grew up, uh, both of my parents uh, worked for the most part. And um, so I, most of the time I would end up cooking for myself or um, my friends. And, you know, sometimes I would say, you know, complain to my parents, like, oh, why can we have this? Can we have that? And sometimes they would just say, oh, well, if you want it, you have to make it. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of started, started out like that. Um, and then my first job was in a, as a dishwasher in a restaurant, like a local restaurant. And eventually that kind of grew into becoming a, you know, a host and then a prep cook. And then it grew into becoming a real cook. And then it kind of, uh, it just uh, snowballed from there. Mm, right. So then kind of confirming that your love for food and cooking was real, right? Mm, yeah. Just exactly. Saying. Yeah. Right. And then you, um, before you opened Nisei, um, you worked at the very prominent restaurants that include Kagurazaka Ishikawa, Nihon Dori Ryugin, and uh, Asa Door Ichibari in the Canary Hotspot in Basque, Spain. So um, they're amazing. Like, uh, you know, Kagurazaka Ishikawa, Nihon Dori Ryugin, these are really top restaurants in Japan as well. So, um, so what did you learn at these restaurants? Oh, it's a kind of a broad question, but I mean, I learned, a, <laughs> <We're like fine. laughs> yeah, I learned quite a lot. Um, so I, when I was, uh, went to Nihon Ryori Yugi and I was very young, I was in my early twenties. Um, so that was really, that's really when I made the commitment and the dive to kind of become a chef. So the first step I thought was, okay, well, I need to reconnect with my my heritage and learn uh, Japanese food from the best. So I, um, I sent them applications over and over again. And then I started sending them in Japanese and they finally, they finally accepted. And, um, <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think when I learned from Ryugin was, um, was a couple of things. Cause, uh, Seiji, Seiji San is like, um, his style of Japanese food. First of all, it's incredible. I mean, he's, has kind of been at the top of his game for so long and he has earned mission stars and such recognition because his food is incredible. But he started out kind of challenging Japanese food in a lot of ways. But then when I attended uh, Ryugin, it was kind of going back more to almost traditional Japanese food, but just executed very well. Um, so it kind of what I learned at Ryugin was that it was okay to challenge tradition and it kind of, um, you know, it's okay to challenge Japanese tradition. And it's that is something very important because, you know, as a Japanese person and a chef, you know, tradition is very important to all of us, <laughs> so, especially in cooking. You know, a lot of people don't want to deviate from the norm. And I think that uh, working there taught me that it's okay to question and it's okay to, like, challenge and do things differently. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. And then I think... I, and the other two, I went to Asadora Chabari um, at the recommendation of a friend. He said, okay, well, you know, if you want to learn other cuisines, you should try this one out. It's one of the best restaurants I learned there. And 
of course, if you're not familiar, it's a restaurant based completely around grilling. Uh, he he takes it to the extreme where he gets his own, he gets live firewood. He uh, created the whole hearth movement in the culinary world. Um, but he grills, everything has to touch the grill. Everything has to touch the the flame. And so that was a really eye-opening because it's one of the most delicious meals I've ever had in my entire life. And it, But when you go into the back of the kitchen, it really is just very simple. It's just really just salt and grilling the the product and it's like it's like how is this so good <laughs> it really taught me that sometimes like on the opposite end of the spectrum you know sometimes an uncomplicated food and just simple food is sometimes it's best and then uh i guess to find <laughs> to round it out, i'm sorry this is too lengthy but um you know at kakura zaka ishikawa that's a it's a very like massive restaurant group and ishikawa-san is like a force to be reckoned with and he has so many restaurants so when i was there they actually had me kind of bounce around to other some of their other restaurants when they needed help at like kohaku which is down the street it's another three star and uh ren which was in ginza they had me bounce around there as well um but it working there um all of the entire group it's almost kind of like if, if you ever get to go, it's really incredible. It's, it's almost like kind of like a cult. <laughs> um, all the cooks like shave their head. Um, and, you know, everyone has like a very high amount of teamwork and a very like very humble attitude, I guess, um, very like kind of Japanese in that way. Um, but it really like, you know, refortified, I guess, the, my, the Japanese kind of mentality in a kitchen where it's like to stay humble and just, you know, you just want to get the perfect job done, but you have to do it through teamwork. And it was very nice to see and uh, how how much teamwork there was and how much, um, I guess, passion there was in each of the restaurants. And, it, and then the, their cuisine at Ishikawa is like, it's basically like kaiseki almost, um, but it it's very simple, um, very, very, um, they do things like pretty traditionally, but they just do it very well and they use the best products. And again, it kind of went back to, okay, like, you know, sometimes simple Japanese food is sometimes best, but sometimes they would do other things too. They would like make some fun desserts or they would do things out of the ordinary. And it was kind of just like, um, it was the last step, the last, like, um, I guess trip I had before I opened my own restaurant. So it kind of like strengthened my resolve to open up my own restaurant after that. Mm, right. Wow, amazing. So you kind of hit a triangle of uh, business and uh, as well as uh, cooking. Uh, I happen right. to know uh, uh, Chef Seiji Yamamoto of uh, Ryugen, and mm. uh, he's not just talented, super talented chef, but his management, how to deal with daily issues and um, kind of like a p- human management it's just outrageously mm. uh, philosophical, and mm. uh, he inspires a lot of other people in the industry too. And it's really advancing. You know, chef's status tend to be much lower, but his mindset is elevating kind of culinary award status, which I really admire. Uh, so, mm. yeah, I'm impressed at all those three places you worked. Um, no wonder you got the Michelin star six months after <laughs> you opened your own place. So that really makes sense now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, so we'll talk about your restaurant, Nisei, in a moment. But um, 
let's take a look at the keyword uh, Nisei. So how do you define Nisei uh, yourself and what is it like to be a Nisei in America? Uh, yeah. So I would define Nisei as a, a second generation a Japanese person born outside of Japan. Um, and that's what I am. So um, that's how I would define it. And what it's, I guess, what it's like, at least as a Nisei in America, I don't know about other countries. Um, but for me, um, when I was growing up, I think that you're always kind of writing this middle ground of, am I American or am I, you know, am I Japanese or which one do I, you know, which one do I lean into? Uh, you know, like a lot of times when I was growing up, my father would kind of push me to be, do a lot of American things. And, you know, he pushed me to learn Spanish because it's more useful. Um, I mean, I still learn Japanese as well, but, um, he like really pushed me into doing a lot of American activities. It's like, okay, so should I be assimilating or should I be, you know, should I be more Japanese? <laughs> um, so it was kind of always like this really strange middle line growing up. Um, but luckily for me, I grew up in, uh, you know, like in, in Houston, which is like more of like an urban setting and there's lots of diversity in Houston. So I had a lot of Asian American friends growing up. So it kind of made me feel more uh, a welcome, you know, because a lot of them were going through the kind of the same thing. I had a lot of Chinese and Vietnamese friends growing up and they all had the same kind of struggle where it's like, okay, well, I have this traditional side at home, but when I'm in school or with friends, we act American. So it's, a, it's kind of like an awkward feeling, but I think that now that I'm older, I feel more comfortable with who I am and as like, it's okay to be both, you know, it's mm. okay to have both sides. And I don't have to say like, just say like, oh, I'm only Japanese or I'm only American. It's okay to be both. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I was born and raised in Japan. I no questioning. And even like, what is being uh, someone not being Japanese? That's like, um, that's a question, but it's not a question because you can even think of what it's like to be. And uh, we tend to, I think globally, we tend to think things are binary, right? Uh, which one do you take? But that kind of flexible in-between area, I think it's uh, increasing the value. That's a uniqueness uh, we can really enjoy. So, yeah, I think your definition is just uh, fascinating. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's very cool. Yeah, I think also just to add on to that, I think, you know, not just for Nisei, but other Asian Americans and probably other cultures like Mexican Americans or whatever, you know, they probably feel the same kind of struggle, you know, where it's, I think they want to hold on to the traditions from their, um, you know, their parents, but at the same time, they want to be American. So it's like, I think it's a very common struggle. And that I think that it's, you know, that's why I created the restaurant to just say like, oh, it's okay to be in the middle. You know, mm, right, and also um, you can keep changing too, right? Over time, so that's another. You can design who you are, and uh, you are representing how flexibly you can change your definition through your cuisine. And I think it's a very inspiring concept. Uh, you have this tool to express who you are, which is, I think, a very lucky thing. Mm. Right. right. Okay, so uh, we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll dive into David's restaurant, Nisei, and his inspiring collaborations with other chefs to explore global cultural heritage. So please stay with us. 
This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs, um, Heritage Radio Network, HRN. I'm your host, Katema, and my guest today is David Yoshimura, who is the chef-owner of Nisei in San Francisco, California, which earned a Michelin star six months after its opening. So let's talk about your very successful restaurant named Nisei, uh, which you opened in 2022. So, uh, so what is the concept of your restaurant, Nisei? Uh, so Nisei is a contemporary Japanese restaurant that uses local California ingredients, and we uh, we represent it through a tasting menu. Mm. So that allows you to express freely the flavors, and also maybe going back to that Spanish cooking experience, you really maximize the flavor of uh, rich California ingredients? Uh, I think so. I mean... California, in my opinion, has some of the best produce in America. And, you know, if you're ever in the Bay Area, um, I think the Bay Area is the the top of California ingredients. You know, we're very spoiled um, with having lots of farmers markets and it gives us lots of access to local farmers. And on top of that, uh, we're right next to the Pacific Ocean. So um, our seafood is very good. Mm, right. And the essence of Japanese cuisine is, of course, uh, the ingredients that's available seasonally and locally. So you really have the, the traditional mindset in California as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of my cuisine is based on uh, the seasons, like most other Japanese restaurants. Um, so I think that, again, like we're pretty spoiled in San Francisco to have access to everything. Mm. But by the way, why did you choose San Francisco? Because of that, the availability of the superb ingredients throughout the year? Um, it was partially that. Um, before Nisei, I was working at Californios, you know, trying to figure out if I wanted to stay in, in uh, San Francisco and make this my home. Um, before uh, California, I was based in New York. Uh, I worked at WD50 for some time. And I, I mean, I love New York and it's an incredible city. And I think it, restaurants can thrive there. But as I worked longer and longer in San Francisco, I kind of came to realize that, wow, I, I realized that it's like, wow, this, this city is, is kind of in the middle of, it's like a culinary capital. You know, it was kind of on the rise for Michelin-starred restaurants when I first arrived. And I think in my opinion, it still is. It's, it's one of the best 
um, culinary cities in America, in my opinion. Mm, right. I agree. <laughs> For many other reasons, <laughs> New York is very difficult. Um, mm. So I'm so glad, you know, you're, I think the Michelin star restaurants are thriving throughout the country now. So I think definitely you're one of the leadership's uh, restaurants. So that's Thank exciting. You. Yeah. Uh, so you offer um, multi-course tasting menus at Nisei. So uh, could you pick some of your signature dishes and tell us the theme, maybe creativity and the traditional parts in each dish? Uh, sure. Um, we were talking earlier that the food has kind of changed a little bit over since the opening. Um, but I think some dishes that stand out that a lot of guests talk about is um, we opened up with uh, like a Japanese curry um, with uh, sweetbreads, chanterelle mushrooms, uh, fermented Napa cabbage or hakusai, and um, and uh, cilantro flour on top. And I think this dish in particular is a little bit of a signature dish because it really does encompass kind of like a Nisei uh, mentality. You know, everybody knows, and especially Americans, like knows Japanese curry, you know, out of the box i think a lot of us grew up eating it and it's a comfort food um so i just wanted to recreate it so what i did was i, I made the curry from scratch um, which i learned how to make when i was at ishikawa and um i added some squid ink to it to make it black and so uh, then i took sweetbreads um uh, which i love sweetbreads i grew up in in texas again so i had a lot a lot of southern influence so i i uh, deep fried some sweetbreads put it in the curry and then chanterelle mushrooms are from California, um, when they're very, very seasonal. And then the fermented Napa cabbage is just a very simple uh, salt fermentation. It's like very traditional um, a fermented cabbage. Uh, there's not, nothing really um, secret about it. And yeah, I think it just really encompasses, you know, using local ingredients, but creating something similar or something, uh, I guess, familiar for a lot of Japanese Americans but kind of raising the bar a little bit. Right. Well, the curry, I think Japanese curry is like a soul food of Japanese people. And uh, I mean, people, it came to uh, to Japan uh, when the British people came. That's what people say. But uh, it's definitely Japanese, very Japanese food, even if it's called mm. the curry. So I think your take on uh, Japanese curry is very Japanese, but also, I mean, you can't go wrong, right? Uh, squid ink. And uh, sweet bread. <laughs> I am mm. so hungry right now. I will think by thinking about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what else do you have? Um, I think another one that we were running for a long time was we were using a grilled American unagi. And we used to get our American unagi from uh, Maine. Uh, and we would, it was very, this was more of a traditional dish. It was, uh, but it was using local ingredients. So again, it was American unagi. And then I just grilled it uh over the Bijotan grill, and I just grill it the way that I was taught um, at Ryugen, you know, just very simple with tare. And then we used local sushi rice from Sacramento from a farm called Ruin Foreman. And uh, we mix the rice with furitake, which I, I make with all the fish scraps in house. Um, and then next to it, we usually have uh, miso pickled garlic, which takes a couple months to make, and then uh, just some daikon oroshi most of the time. So it's like kind of same thing, you know, it's like we're using all these local American ingredients, but I'm recreating it into making something Japanese, but it's still local. Mm. And then like, you know, it, it is like 
there's a lot of uh, I think this this dish is a little bit more traditional, but it's still very it's writing that in between line of being American but also Japanese. Mm, right. Well, <laughs> I have to say you're challenging yourself because this unagi uh, that's the uh, the river eel. It's a challenge, right? It's like a test. It's like, how can you make the best burger? And it's just, uh, you really have to be good at it. And the binchotan with the crispy skin of Rio, um, mm. it's a big test. And uh, I think you're really uh, <laughs> I mean, raising the bar for yourself, but I'm sure it's amazing. Uh, I think a lot of um, Japanese people like from Japan are usually pretty skeptical when they come to eat at Nisei because they're really. Really, uh, <laughs> they're always kind of um, they're always kind of be putting me to the test, but almost always they're they're satisfied. <laughs> mm, right. Well, I think the binchotan is such a special uh, charcoal grill because the binchotan itself is very um, very uh, <laughs> exceptionally well made. So the higher temperature and also it doesn't smoke, so you really can enjoy the smell and taste of fatty eel and. It's just the, the beauty of Japanese culture. And I have to say, that's why there are generations old um, eel restaurants in Japan. So, yeah. So I mm. hope I can get to taste that <laughs> at your restaurant sometime next time we go to San Francisco. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we can keep talking about the dishes, but um, I want to ask you, we have a very interesting program uh, called the, uh, it's a dinner series at Nisei called The Third Culture, a Nisei collaboration series. So what is it and why did you start the series? So the Third Culture collaboration series, um, it kind of started by, I wanted to kind of raise awareness for Asian and Asian American chefs. I think that, um, I think that there's a lot of Asian American chefs that are not getting a lot of as much press as they should be. And I think that my mission statement of Nisei being, you know, Asian and American, it's, it's very powerful. And I think that a lot of other chefs uh, reached out to me and they, you know, they would say the same, same thing. They would say, you know, like, it's so cool that you're like very proud of who you are as an Asian American. And so then I thought, you know, like, why not we all just <laughs> get together and kind of celebrate it in a way. Um, and so I, we came up with a series, and uh, so every month we highlight one Asian or Asian American chef to kind of talk about. Not only is it a collaboration event where we both kind of cook our own dishes, and then sometimes we make up some dishes uh, together, um, and it's usually a two-day event on Saturday and Sunday once a month. Um, but not only do we make like delicious food, but where there's also a uh, like a discussion portion halfway through the meal. We do it twice. And uh, we have a moderator who usually asks us like um, questions from the audience. Uh, at the beginning of the meal, we'll pass around some questionnaires and say, hey, if there's any um, questions you want to ask the chefs about their cuisine or their experience growing up as an Asian American, you know, we'll talk about it later. And a lot of the um, questions have been very, they've been great. I mean, they vary quite significantly, but um, it's we've seen a lot of good responses from the, the guests and I think it, it kind of not only does it make a great meal but it also kind of makes you think about the experience of Asian Americans and how it reflects upon uh, cuisine and culture in America 
Mm, wow, that's an amazing idea. I, I wish other restaurants do not just the same, but in many situations or, you know, oh, who's cooking, who, who, what the themes are. This is amazing. So maybe you can share us what kind of interesting questions it was raised or yeah. anything, answer, discussions. Sure. I mean, the, actually, some of the questions that are asked are very similar to the questions that you ask Akiko. <laughs> uh, you know, they usually ask, like, um, what are, I think it was once a night, we usually get, you know, what are some of the challenges of being an Asian American chef? Um, and I think the way that usually I'll answer that is that I think for me, a challenge was almost like an identity crisis growing up, right? <laughs> mm. um, like, like I talked about before, it's like, okay, do I want to cook Jap like traditional Japanese food or do I want to cook American food or do I not even like, you know, what do I want to do? And then I think my answer to the, usually that question is, I just wanted to cook how, who I am. You know, I want to cook honestly for who I am and I'm both. So I'm going to be cooking both California and Japanese and like, for me, that was a big challenge is like being okay with myself and, um, you know, cooking honestly with who I am. Mm. Um, but I think, uh, another question that was kind of a fun one that we got last time was, uh, we had one guest ask, you know, how did they say it? They said, uh, you know, what is one ingredient or one dish that you would want to make in America that would be frowned upon? <laughs> which I thought was really funny. <laughs> and so I, uh, you know, as a Japanese uh, chef, you know, in Japan, you can eat all sorts of, you can eat whatever you want in Japan. Like, nobody really cares. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, I was like, oh, I would love to work with horse meat maybe, or, you know, sometimes people eat whale in Japan. It would be fun to work with that. Uh, but I think in America, it's a little bit frowned upon. So I don't think mm. we could do that. Mm. Yeah, like live shrimp or something like that, right? It's more like a politically <laughs> incorrect. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, interesting. So, but I think uh, you just in your answer, you know, with the challenges being an um, Asian chef. Um, but I think you really representing what people cannot make, right? If you have just one national background, ethnic background, or how you define yourself, you can't make what you're making because you know both sides of the culture. You know how to merge them and you can pick and choose whatever people you think is valuable, which is unthinkably valuable. So, yeah, I'm so glad this um, the series sounds like it's confirming what you're using is valuable beyond just the amazing mission stars. So, yeah. So um, what kind of chefs uh, did you have so far? What background and countries? Sure. Um, so the first, we've only done uh, maybe three or four now. Um, the first one was James Perry. Uh, he's kind of just starting starting out in San Francisco. He's doing pop-ups under the name Happy Crane. Uh, and he's half Cantonese and half English. Um, but he used to work at Ryugan as well. So that's how I kind of got to know him. Um, so he's like half Asian. So that was number one. Number two was... Uh, a Korean American chef. His name <coughs> he is the chef owner of Baramaze, and his name is Ki Chung. He used to work in the Bay Area, and he uh, currently works in Hawaii. And so his food is very kind of Hawaiian, Korean, uh, but you can see the influence there. And then uh, most recently, I did one with James uh, Shaibout from Komi. So he's a two Michelin star chef in Oakland. 
so right nearby and he's like um he's like thai uh cambodian or laotian i believe um but his food is at komi is a uh, you know, he has a ton of, a ton of experience. Like he's extremely talented and very humble. Um, but he, his food, sometimes it, it's, it can be Asian leaning and sometimes it's very California. And it was very, very humbling to work with him because he just makes it look so effortless and he's so comfortable with who he is. I was like, oh, I was a little starstruck a little bit working with him. <laughs> um, I was like, man, he's so much further ahead of me, but I kind of had a, a moment, but uh, yeah, those are the, some of the chefs. Mm, right. And also you have uh, more small people coming up, right, in uh, June, July, August. So maybe you can tell us who is coming and when, because I guess uh, listeners may want to participate in one of those of dinners. Course. Yeah. Uh, most, the upcoming one, uh, we have a chef from Waikiki. Uh, her name is Nayo Gawa from Nature. Um, her she's, a, uh, she's actually first generation Japanese, um, and she has... She uses a lot of local Hawaiian ingredients, and she had, does have a vegetarian menu. So I'm interested to see like what she'll bring to the table. Uh, after that, in July, um, a former coworker of mine named Hieda Ryohei. He's from um, the the uh, old Taipei location of Ryugen. Uh, he was a chef de cuisine there. Um, so he is extremely talented chef, and <laughs> I actually used to. Uh, stay on his floor when I was working at Ryugen. <laughs> so I think he may have some not so fond memories of me and maybe some fond <laughs> memories. <laughs> Let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah. But he's a, uh, he's a very uh, nice guy. And so I'm excited for that one. And then in August, um, we have uh, chef Hirohisa from New York city, actually, he's going to come in. So a lot mm. of things are lined up in the, for the summer. Awesome. Yeah. Hirohisa Hayashi from Hirohisa. Uh, he's got a Michelin star too, and uh, he came to Japanese a long time ago. And uh, he's a very super cool um, and funny person. So I, I'm sure you're going to have a great time with him. Mm. Right. So it's uh, the next one is June 24th, 25th. That's from uh, with Nae Ogawa from uh, Honolulu. And uh, July, uh, I don't know the date, but uh, end of July, I think the last week of July. Uh, do you have uh, yeah. The end of July for um, for Ryugen, and then and right. the middle of August for Hirohisa. Okay, so you can uh, find this information on your website, right? Correct. Yeah. Right. Awesome. So, and yeah, so I really think that what you're doing is not just running an amazing restaurant, cooking amazing food. So, what excites you most about what you're doing? It's a broad question. But we have time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what excites me? Well, I think kind of what excites me these days is um, kind of like raising the bar on Japanese cuisine. I think, you know, for me, I think a lot of Japanese food, there's tons and tons of tradition. You know, uh, when I was working in Japan, you know, of course, you know, as well, it's like there's these shops and restaurants that have been around for centuries and their family and they, you know, they are masters of of whichever it could be, you know, like the Unagi restaurant you're talking about. Um, but for me, since I'm in America, you know, it kind of made more sense for me to be excited about, you know, raising the bar a little bit and doing something new. Um, you know, I think it's fun to recreate dishes and kind of do things that people haven't done before in Japanese cuisine. 
and use technique that I've learned in the past to kind of kind of challenge people. You know, like I said, sometimes we'll, I'll have some diners that are very traditional uh, Japanese people and they'll kind of, <laughs> they'll kind of look down and say, you know, this isn't traditional Japanese food. And I'm, and then, you know, to them, I just say, yeah, I know, I know it's not, it's, and that's okay. And it, it excites me. It's like, it's okay that it's not. Um, mm-hmm. So that's something exciting. I think it's recreating and making new dishes. Right. Interesting. So I know that um, the Kyoto Kaiseki chefs uh, wants to explore what they can with do with the and um, traditional traditional ingredients as well. So it's kind of um, mutually it's coming to um, more of explore exploration mindset. You know, rather than just get stuck in tradition, you have to. It's a, the world is connected, and uh, everybody wants to use new ingredients and um that's a mutual uh you know efforts to get more globally minded in japan as well and also someone like you talented outside of japan mm-hmm. so yeah and uh actually um <laughs> it's funny that kaiseki chefs i stayed in kyoto like 10 days and i spent a lot of time with Kaiseki chefs and they said, "Don't you get tired of the food because it's so seasonal? Everybody's cooking the same thing." <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of true because every ingredient this is a seasonal shun, so it's they're chasing uh, each shun ingredients last lasts only a couple of weeks, right? So this really fight for the best of that ingredient specific ingredient, and then ended up doing the same thing at every restaurant. And if you just follow the same preparation, if you go to ten kaiseki restaurants, you tend to have the same kind of preparation. So that's what the kaise, one of the kaiseki chefs told me, uh, which is funny because he's got a Michelin star and all those. Um, that's the fact. Somebody has to um, expose something and find something new, and then find something delicious and share it. And then that's how Japanese food uh, has never got tired or aged so i think you yeah. are yeah part of the effort thank you but i i completely agree i mean it's definitely the same mentality whether you're a kaiseki chef or you know something more i guess like american chef like me um i think something that i was thinking about when you were saying that is you know in california we have lots of lots and lots of seasons very hyper seasonal ingredients like we even get fresh bamboo here which i don't think a lot of people know about um, but one dish that we came up with recently is like, you know, we have beautiful morel mushrooms and, uh, all over California. So I stuffed it with sukune and then I serve a soy cured egg yolk on the side. So you can kind of dip it into the egg yolk, like, uh, almost like you have grilled <laughs> sukune, <laughs> mm. but, uh, but uh, instead you put it inside the mushroom and I thought that was kind of fun and same kind of thing. It's like, have to find new ways to use these seasonal ingredients. And like, that's what's keeping Japanese food alive. Mm, right wow yeah sounds like the california is the right place i'm so glad you opened the place in san francisco because it's a new discovery i'm learning <laughs> especially in the world <laughs> and central you mentioned why not right the shiitake i grew up with it's kind of kind of dominant and you want to mm. try some other flavors um yeah that's interesting so um well uh what are your plans and dreams and do you think uh, maybe you can uh, write a book and share all those interesting recipes with the world? <laughs> yeah, 
it's funny that you bring up the book. Some people, it seems like the world keeps asking me if I can write a book. And I, I think I'm too, it's too early for me to write a book. I think I'm still very, you know, I'm still a baby in the restaurant world, I think. But um, I think my plans and dreams, maybe eventually a book, but um, hopefully another restaurant or soon. I, I also, we have a bar next door called Bar Iris. And, uh, you know, we serve Japanese influenced cocktails and we serve like uh, izakaya bites next door. But I think, you know, Bar Iris is so popular that it, it would be great to open up almost like a second location somewhere or maybe even like a second Nisei because it seems like, you know, people are asking for more and more. It's like, okay, well, I have to give them, <laughs> I have to give them the demand. I have to give it to them. <laughs> mm, right. So the concept of bar iris is more like a casual and then you can just, instead of a tasting menu, you can just go have nice cocktails and have some uh, tsumami like snacks. Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah pretty much. Uh, the cocktails are very, uh, very upscale. Um, and they're, they take a lot of time to make. So definitely going for more of a refined cocktail bar. Uh, but the, the food at the Bar Iris, you know, we kind of tend to do more, almost more like a izakaya style. Like we have a kuroke and karaage on there. And we have some like temaki and, you know, things like that. We just put on like a cold somen dish, you know, just like really like easy and more um, relatable Japanese food. Mm, right. I like that uh, you spend a lot of time making a cocktail. That's like a classic Japanese style bar. And mm-hmm. you you really wait and then the time to wait for a perfect cocktail. That really creates a time special to enjoy the drink as well. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, well, this is um, because I'm, I've been talking about, you know, Japanese food in general from your, you know, broad perspective. What do you think about you know current um, Japanese food in America and the future? Because um, Japanese cuisine really dramatically changed since tempura sukiyaki and nobody ate sushi, and suddenly you know something like Nobu made Japanese sushi fancy, and then ramen came, and then we started to eat ramen and familiar with dashi and soy sauce and sake more, and now. Um, high-end Japanese sushi places came from Japan and they charged like really great, great quality sushi, but it costs a lot of money. And, uh, you know, it's to me, I'm not sure if it's the healthy development of Japanese food here and like your place as well as the Bar Iris uh, in your own place. I think we have to make it more available and approachable and use fire people with new ingredients. And that's what I think, um, because I want to uh, keep Japanese food as a part of American food and thrive and enjoy it widely because it's healthy and tasty. So what do you think um, about the future of Japanese cuisine here? Like what you, you want it to be like? Mm. Uh, I think I'm very hopeful for the future of Japanese cuisine. I think that your 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 history of, about it is it's very true. I agree with everything that you said. You know, I think that uh, sushi, ramen, it's all very popular, and I think that America is accepting Japanese food extremely well. Um, but I think for the future, I think at least in the Bay Area, we're starting to see uh, a lot more a lot more different Japanese food that I think a lot of people aren't familiar with. 
that are outside of sushi and ramen, which I, it's great. You know, like I think more people are learning more. Americans are learning more about the different aspects of Japanese cuisine. Like, you know, yakitori is starting to become more popular and like some other, <laughs> like, I guess, subsections of Japanese cuisine are all these different dishes that people are familiar with. Um, so I think for the future, what I can see is, I think you'll start to see more casual uh, shops of Japanese food. Like, you know, when you go to Japan, there's like most restaurants, they only specialize in like one thing or they do something very well, like a tonkatsu place, or you can go and get like, a, like you said, an unagi restaurant. Um, I think the future of Japanese restaurants in America will kind of follow, hopefully follow that line. And, you know, maybe I can also kind of, jump on that trend and lead it in some way shape or form i would love to start seeing shops like that that specialize in one thing i think it's for me it's the ultimate business model you know you you mm. get really you master one thing and then of course people will want to buy it right yeah i i'm now hopeful <laughs> so i uh, <laughs> keep watching you and uh, hopefully you can keep coming back here and discuss what's happening so, yeah. So where can we find your updates online and on social media? Um, usually our Instagram is a good place to find updates. It's um, at Nisei underscore SF. Or you can just simply go to our website or our talk page. Uh, talk is a reservation page, but mostly the Instagram is, is a good place. Okay, so the, the website is restaurant you say one word restaurant you say dot com. So okay, so uh well congratulations again and also good luck. Oh thank you so much and I just want to say it was it was really an honor to be on your show. I've listened to it for quite some time, so thank you for having me. Oh that means the world to me, so thank you. So all right, so uh Listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japaneeds at heritagebuildingnetwork.org or hikokatayama.com. Japaneeds is a weekly program and always available at heritagebuildingnetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is William Warner, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Japan Eats is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.